Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week on the show, I'm handing the microphone off to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, who's got veteran cycling journalist Kaylee Fretz on the pod to discuss some of the challenges and opportunities facing cycling journalism. You may know Kaylee from his work as editor-in-chief over at Cycling Tips and prior to that over at Velo News. Both publications have undergone some downsizing of late. The economic headwinds facing professional journalists are strong, particularly in the cycling world. If we want to have quality reporting and storytelling, a new model needs to emerge. I don't know where this is all going to end up, but I was super excited that Kaylee agreed to join Randall on the podcast to just get his perspective and to get into some good old-fashioned bike geekery. Before we jump in, we need to thank this week's sponsors from Thesis and Logos Components. As many of you know, I'm a longtime Thesis OB1 rider. For a limited time, Thesis is offering $500 off a Thesis OB1 with access custom wireless shifting and your choice of high-end carbon wheels. It's a bike that I can personally attest stands up to every other carbon bike out there on the market at a really great price. One of the things that I've always appreciated about Thesis is that they allow a unique level of customization. So if you want size appropriate cranks down to, I think 160 or 165 millimeters, you can do that. You can get your stem size, you can customize everything based on a free one-on-one consult. So go check out thesis.bike or contact hello at thesis.bike to get started. I also want to give a shout out to Logos Components. Logos just received huge recognition from bikepacking.com and was awarded the Gear of the Year Award for the wheelset category in 2022. You might recall an episode we did a while back on how to choose a gravel wheelset where Randall went through detail by detail on the design considerations when constructing a carbon wheel set. I encourage you to listen to that as it provided a lot of riders with reflection on what they were looking for and what all the different things were. All Logos wheels are built on proven open standards with non-proprietary components and with a manufacturing precision that rivals anybody in the industry. The wheels are backed by Logos's five-year warranty, lifetime at-cost incident protection, and a U.S.-based warehouse and support team to keep you rolling for many years to come. So head on over to logoscomponents.com and use the code COMMUNITYFREESHIPPING, all one word, to take advantage of a free shipping offer. With that business behind us, I'm going to pass the microphone back over to Randall and his conversation with Kaylee Fretz. It's been quite a bit. I think I last saw you at Sea Otter. How have yeah. you been? What's going on in your world? <laughs> well, I'm fun employed <laughs> as of yeah. November 15th. I mean, yeah, let's just, we can get that one right out of the way, right? I was part of the layoffs at Outside Inc. To be somewhat differentiated from Outside Magazine for anybody out there. I mean, Outside Inc. does own Outside Magazine, but it also owns lots and lots of other things. Yeah, myself, mm-hmm. the editor-in-chief of Vela News as well, and two of the CT staff, two really core CT staff, Matt Deneef, our managing editor, and Dave Rome, one of our tech editors and, and kind of a legend in space. We're all let go on the same day on November 15th. So I am currently super fun employed. And I think after we chat today, I'm probably going to go skiing because it's snowing up in the mountains right now. And so I'm, I'm somewhat enjoying myself. But, you know, fun employment brings with it some level of stress as well. <laughs> so that's that's how I'm doing right sure, now. Sure, yeah. sure. 
Well, and I appreciate you sharing. I think last we rode together, you were still living in Boulder and you've since mm-hmm. moved to beautiful Durango. When was that move? That was shortly after we had our, our first child. My wife grew up here and, and we have grandparents here to help with childcare and all the rest. And we just wanted to get Excellent. off the front range. No offense to the front range, there's too many people and there's fewer people here. And I can go skiing 18 minutes from here, from my door. And I can't really complain wow. about that. Housing costs are probably a little bit less bonkers out that way as well. I was oh, in Denver oh. and particularly Boulder lately, and it is nuts. It's a little bit better here, although not as not as good as it was four or five years ago. It, it, it's a Zoom town, right? So in the last couple of years, it, Got it. it's, it's gone up like 28% or something ridiculous in, in 2021. We love it here. It's amazing. Yeah. Durango, the bike community here is, is unbelievable. The mountain biking is unbelievable. And there's nobody that you have not as many people to share all the trails with. So we like that bit of it as well. Very, very cool. And so let's just dive into, because I've been curious, share a bit about your background. So I, I've only known you as, you know, in your role as, as a journalist and editor at Cycling Tips. But how do you end up on this path? Oh, I mean, how far back do you want to go? I, I started racing mountain bikes at 12 or 13 years old. My dad was a cyclist. My dad was a... Uh, uh, I think one of the founding members of the Penn State cycling team, collegiate cycling team back in the day. So I grew up around bikes and I grew up around bike racing and watching the tour and all these things. And yeah, started racing when my family moved to Burlington, Vermont back in the day at Catamount ah, Family Center. Anybody Northeast connection. Yep. Very, very Northeast connection. That's right. That was all my youth. Yeah. Any, any, any New England. And, and your dad is still in Vermont, if I recall correctly, right? Yeah. Yeah. He actually just retired, but he... he used to run a small uh, like sort of children's museum aquarium thing called echo on the, on the waterfront in burlington and yeah so so grew up grew up racing grew up around bikes and went to school out here in colorado mostly to ride by bike to, to make major in bike racing pr- primarily much to my <laughs> parents chagrin i would say and let's see what it what would have been like junior year summer in between junior and senior year of of college Shout out to a friend of mine, Brian Holcomb, who's still in in the bike world. Basically, came to me and was like, "Hey, you should you should be an intern at Velonews." And so I did that, and I and I, I became an intern at Velonews and worked the summer there. And Ben Delaney was the editor in chief at the time, and yeah. Ben was yep. Ben was kind enough to bring me on in a in a kind of part time capacity that fall, um, and then it kind of just went from there. So so. Yeah, a couple folks who are still floating around the bike world, I, I owe a lot to at this point. Ben and and Brian and Zach Vestal, who is sort of one of my first mentors and has been a, a marketing manager at Niner and a couple of Scott and a couple other places recently. Matt, yeah, and just kind of worked from there. So I was a tech editor at sort of tech writer at Bella News for a couple of years, tech editor at Bella News for a couple of years, and then kind of worked my way into bigger and broader beats basically and, and kind of stepped into the racing space a little bit more became i think it was like I think it was senior editor or whatever the title was at the end of my my bell news tenure which was 2017 which is when wade wallace got in touch from cycling tips and he was actually just looking for a person to fill a somewhat similar role kind of like a features writer do a bit of everything kind of writer and i've loved the idea i love cycling tips i love the brand i love everything it stood for i love the fact that it was kind of an up-and-comer and i had been at bell news long enough that i was just looking for a change basically and so i, I jumped ship 
from one to the other, from Hellenus to CT, remained really good friends with lots of folks at, at VN, particularly guys like Andrew Hood, who had done a bunch of tours to France with and things like that. It's like no hard feelings in that in that jump, just wanted something new. And within about a year of that, for a number of different reasons, Wade had promoted me to editor-in-chief at CT. So that was around 20, mid, middle of 2018. And it was an interesting time kind of from a business perspective, because it was near the end of a period when, when CT was owned by Bike Exchange in Australia, and we were about to be purchased by Pinkbike. And with all of that happening, and then particularly with the purchase from Pinkbike, we got a bunch more resource and really could expand into what I think most people probably know Cycling Tips as now, or maybe we'll say six months ago, what they knew it as uh, up, up uh, until quite recently. And... Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, this does not. My time, my my time as EIC of, of cycling tips is is obviously, I think, what most listeners out there would probably know. If not of me, then you at least know cycling tips, and you know what we were trying to do there. I know how much grief there is out there for that core team having been broken up. A lot of people, myself included, who value the perspective that you bring to the industry. It's not simply, you know, flipping press releases, which, you know, there's a place for like there's you know, some people that's they want to see what the press releases are, but doing really interesting journalism. One of your colleagues, uh, Ian Trellor, he's done some interesting pieces on Central Asian despots and their role in cycling and on the uh, Afghan women's cycling team and the controversy with how the UCI was prioritizing getting certain members of that team and the organization out of Afghanistan mm-hmm. when the US was backing out. Like this is not your standard bike industry journalism. And that's an angle that I think is going to be very much missed in the vacuum that's created by your departure and the departure of others from that team. Yeah, it's a sad thing. I think the overwhelming emotion for a lot of us is, is just sadness because we spent a lot of time building this thing and a lot of time and energy and effort and and yeah no no blood but probably some sweat and tears in there and yeah and it, it feels that's just sad you know I, I'm I enjoyed my time there tremendously I enjoyed working with people like Ian with James Wong with Dave who got laid off alongside me it was just a really I can't say it was massively surprising giving a number of things that I can't actually talk about but I I mm-hmm. I am still very saddened by it. Yeah, I mean, sure. it's not going to be what it was because a bunch of the people are gone. Like that, that, that I can say. <laughs> yeah. Now, remind me, when did James join the team? Because he, he's someone I've admired for years. Yeah, he, he joined, a, I think, about 18 months before I did. So okay. when when Bike Exchange, when, when Wade first sold a, a large portion of Cycling Tips to Bike Exchange, that was sort of the first it's a capital infusion that that the company got. And a lot of that was used mm-hmm. to pick up kind of high profile folks, particularly in the United States, which is what's sort of their next, the next market that, that Wade wanted to go after. So that was, they picked up James and they picked up Neil Rogers in the US as well as some mm-hmm. other folks like, like Shane Stokes in the UK or Ireland, I believe he is right now. Yeah. So, so that was all a little bit before I got there. And part of my sort of what they asked me to do, what Wade asked me to do when, when I became editor-in-chief was to figure out exactly how to best use people like James, who do phenomenal work. I mean, I I maintain to this day that the three-person team, the three-person tech team that that we had at Cycling Tips over the last year, which would be James and Dave Rome and Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland as well, was the best anywhere in in cycling media. There's There's no question in my mind about that. And so basically trying to figure out how to steer that talent was one of the big things that I was tasked with doing over the last 
the three, four years. Well, and you know, when you read a review from any of those team members that you're, you're getting it straight you know, <laughs> for better, or for worse, for the brands that are at the mercy of, of that team. But honestly, it keeps the industry honest. And uh, I recall early in my career in the bike and particularly James's writing be being something that I referenced constantly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I was at one of the big players, if I needed to make an argument, I would oftentimes grab an article from someone like him to bring to the argument like, no, press fit is not acceptable and we're going to spend the extra money and add the weight and we're going to tell a story about how a two-piece thread together is a better solution. And honestly, it's a solution to fix what was broken when you went, you know, but that's, that's a, that's a... <laughs> A hobby horse that I think we've all been riding for some time. I love hearing that, though. I, I genuinely love hearing that because, I mean, uh, first of all, James would also love hearing that. He'd be very proud of that fact, I think. And yeah, like we we know that that was the case, right? I mean, we, we the three of us have been making a, a podcast called Nerd Alert for, for yep. the last year and a half or two years or whatever. And I got a fair number of, of less than pleased emails off the back of, of that podcast because we were quite honest in our assessment of what we thought was happening in the industry. And in particular, mm -hmm. like... I haven't been a tech editor for eight, nine years. I'm just a cyclist at this point. But Dave and James are so deep inside it and think they spend so much of their lives thinking about that stuff that, yeah, you, you can't ignore their opinions, right? You, you absolutely can't ignore their opinions. And I think that's that's a testament to, one, the fact, <laughs> the fact that they do their research, and two, the fact that they've been right a number of times. And like over the years, I, mean, yep. I would say that CT is, was known as the anti-press fit media outlet, right? Which is like... There are worse things to be associated with, I think, than hating on creaky bottom brackets. Like who who wouldn't want to hate on creaky bottom brackets? That makes perfect sense to me. Well, and it and it's deeper than just a creaky bottom bracket. It's detracting from this experience that we are all so passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so I think that having someone out there who has influence saying, No, this is not the way it should be, here are the arguments and mm -hmm. and you know, let a case be made. Hey, you know, come on the podcast and talk about why you think PressFit is is the best way to go about it if you really want to make that case. Nobody but yeah, it's an that. approach that I, you know, <laughs> I, I'll take you up on it, but I, I'd probably be on the same side with you on more or less every issue with the exception of maybe a few nuances here and there. But uh, yeah, actually, let's have some fun with this. Other stuff other than PressFit bottom brackets that would be your hill to die on. Well, so actually Dave Rome and I, so reminder, Dave Rome and I were both just recently laid off. And so are free, <laughs> we, we are free to do whatever we want. I don't have a non-compete or anything like that, right? So we've, we've kicked we've kicked off a little podcast. Yep. And what is it called? It's called and how do people find it? Well, at the moment it's called the redundant placeholders because we have no <laughs> idea what to call it. So yeah. If you search it, I think any of the any of the podcast platforms, if you search redundant placeholders, you'll be able to find it. You can also find it on, on any of my social channels. I'm at Kaylee Fretz on everything because I'm the only person on the planet with my name. So that's very handy. Anyway, Dave and I were talking about like, okay, so if we were actually literally talking about this yesterday, which is why it's funny that you bring up bottom brackets. Like if if the bottom bracket, the anti-press fit bandwagon was the one that we were leading before what's our what's our new thing that we get to hate on and we've actually decided that one of the things that we're most interested in pushing and if you listen to the episode from this week you would you would hear this is bikes that are too stiff and just stuff that's too mm. stiff yeah. so specifically dave this this week brought up the topic of of handlebars that are just like way too stiff right just just ridiculously stiff we were talking about the, the 35 mil trend uh in mountain bikes which i hate and like i've got a you know, I've got a giant, I've got a giant trail bike yeah. with 170 mil fork. And then I want to stick like a, just a two by four in my hands. I don't really understand why I want to do that. And I've ended up with like, like more sort of hand cramp, 
and hand pain on this bike than I've ever had previously. And it's got more travel than any bike that I've, I've had previously. So that, those two things don't really line up in, in my head, right? And and so Dave and I were basically talking about pushing pushing back on this need for, for stiffer and stiffer and stiffer and stiffer all the time. And the fact that a lot of us don't need that or really don't want it either. Not only do we not need it, we really don't want it because it makes the ride experience worse. I told a little story yeah. about how one of the best bikes I've ever ridden was a not particularly expensive Mozzie steel frame, steel fork, steel frame that I put a pair of Zip 303 carbon wheels on. So nice, nice, light, stiff wheel set with a somewhat flexy bike, a flexi fork, flexi, flexi frame. But it rode like an absolute dream. You know, 27.2 post. It might have even had, it might have even not had oversized bars. I can't remember. This is, this is like eight, nine years ago now. And I loved it. I absolutely loved this bike. It, 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 it got up and went when I asked it to. I think the wheel set made a huge difference in, in that. But then it, it cornered like an absolute dream and it was comfortable and it was, it was just beautiful. And it was a, a not particularly expensive steel mozzie, right? Like, so that's 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 the that's the high horse upon which we find ourselves now. The fight for less stiff bicycles, I think, is what we're going to go after next. Well, and you can kind of take that a step further. Talking about steel frames, for example, if you get a steel frame, even a, a pretty decent steel frame at say OEM cost is going to be quite a bit less than a monocoque carbon frame you don't have all the tooling costs and everything else and you can change the geometry if you need to without having to retool and those bikes are going to be inherently more affordable at the same time and unless you're an elite racer who's having to sprint off the line or so on you know you either spend less money for an equivalent bike that suits your needs well and is comfortable or you spend the same money and you put it into say better wheels. You don't get the cheap out wheels with the three yep. Paul hubs that fall apart in a year and what have you. Yeah, 100%. that's one I'll join you on. I'm joining the battalion. <laughs> that's yeah. what we're pushing from here on. I've got another one for you. And, yeah. and this this one I don't think you'll disagree with because we talked about sea otter. Hooks. Bead hooks. Oh. Just so keep, bead, just... bead hooks on any real wheels that are marketed for use with road tubeless. I, yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm I like having this conversation with James or Dave around because they know the actual technical reasons. You're yourself probably in the same boat. You know the actual te- technical yep. reasons why this is this is a terrible idea or a good idea, I guess, if, if, if talking the other direction. I just know that as a essentially like I am kind of just a consumer these days, right? Like I said, I, I have not been a tech editor. It has not been my job to follow bicycle technology for close to a decade now. So I'm basically just a, a, a heavily invested consumer who pays you know, quite close attention, right? And as a heavily invested mm-hmm. consumer, I cannot figure out if my wheels and tires are going to kill me at the moment. And I think that that is not really <laughs> an acceptable way forward. I don't, I don't think that that should be allowed in the cycling space. And I, and I, every single time I say that I get a bunch of hookless aficionados coming back at me saying that, oh, it's quite easy. This works with this and this. I'm like, yeah, but I, I, as a person who does not want to go through a bunch of like charts to figure out what tire to run, I don't want that. Just put hooks back on my rims. I don't care about 40 mm-hmm. grams or whatever it is. I just don't care. Well, would you like some more ammo for those yes. arguments when they come up? Give me more ammo. All right. So, so first off, the it used to be the case that it was a substantial, you know, a reasonable weight penalty and a higher cost. That is substantially mitigated by new forming techniques for the bead hooks and mini hooks that you can create that have the same impact resistance as hookless at about five, maybe 10 grams per rim at the high end. And cost, yeah, the cost is a little bit higher, but you know, 
insurance premiums aren't cheap either. And if you have a single incident, that's going to be a problem. So, you know, it was an obvious investment when we made that choice for any wheel that we're marketing for use with anything, say, smaller than a 34. Plus, you get the compatibility with non-tubeless, as you well know. But the other part is you think about the fact that there are compatibility charts that exist, right? I don't want so compatibility that, charts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, if that is the case, then maybe the tolerances are too tight. And it, it's actually, I'll tell you from the inside, it, it's actually worse than that because any good company is going to check every single rim for its bead seat circumference, mm. right? So those are pretty easy to get within spec. And then the tires, the tires are not all checked to my knowledge. They're kind of randomly checked. So, okay, now you, now you could have a variation. You only need one that's not the tolerance. But let's say both of those are in, are in tolerance. But now you have the tape. And if the tape is too thick or too thin, or someone puts two layers on, they replace the tape or whatever, maybe it was intolerance initially, but and then you change it and you know you do two layers. Now the bead is too tight. It wants to drop into the channel and then pop over the edge of the of the hook. And so it's just not this. good. <laughs> just all sorts of not good. I hate it so much. It's just, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I always, I was cognizant when, back in when we were making the Nerd Alert podcast that, you know, we didn't just want to complain about things, right? Like we didn't just want to tell the industry that it was, it was doing things wrong because most of the time this industry does great things and they build lots of amazing bikes that I love to ride. There's just a couple mm -hmm. things like this that are like, what, what are we doing? Like, is, is this, is this the bean counters? Is it the gram counters? What counters are, are causing this particular, it must be the bean counters at this point, but I hate it either way. Bean counters, and then, then also the, the marketing hypers, mm. right? So there's a new thing. Hookless is a new thing. Car, car wheels don't have hooks. Why do bicycle wheels have hooks? Well, you know, because it's 110 PSI that people are sometimes putting. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> car wheels have 33 PSI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a round bike tire. Yes. Well, I, we agree on that point. And I, I think that that is one that we will continue to complain about. And I will just continue yeah. to be annoyed that, that I that I can't feel confident in what I'm riding without doing a bunch of, of searching and Google searching. And I don't want to have to do that. Nor should your average rider need to rely on that in order to be safe. Like well, that, average, that's the part that I find kind yeah. of kind of bonkers. Average rider doesn't even know to do that. Um, that's the problem. Yeah, true. True. And the, la the last part of that is why do the tire pressure recommendation charts kind of go to 70 proportional with the weight and then they just kind of taper off? You know, that, that also kind of tells you something about the confidence in this, you know, particular combination of tire and rim and, and pressure and so on. Mm -hmm. But all right. Should we, well, I guess we hop off this high horse then. That was good fun though. <laughs> <laughs> I could do this all day. So you mentioned Ben Delaney, and he's yeah. an interesting person to bring up because he's a, a mutual acquaintance, also somebody whose writing I've been reading since my early days in the industry, and also somebody who has been trying to figure out how to navigate the changing landscape in cycling media, which the business model for, for media in general has undergone a dramatic shift. And in his case, he has his new YouTube channel and is doing a freelance work for certain publications and is making a go of it that way. But how would you describe the industry dynamics as having changed during mm. your time in the media side? Oh, I mean, I would say I was relatively insulated from it 
personally for a long time. And until I kind of reached a, a, a level of management, so to speak, that it became my problem. <laughs> I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Yeah, Ben was unfortunately the the the, the victim of a, an outside layoff a, a while ago. So he's been making a solo go of it since I think May or June of 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 last year of this year 2022 and, and yeah like his his he's experimenting and, it, and it's it's good to i like watching him trying to figure this out right because i feel like he's kind of doing it for all of us at the moment and and trying to figure out exactly you know various ways to to make this thing work and um yeah he's got his his youtube channel is great i mean i watch it all the time i'm actually going to be on it sometime soon i just I just recorded a thing with him picking our favorite products of the year i think i went oh, in a sli- cool. i think i went in a slightly different direction than, than probably most of his guests because my favorite product was bar mitts for my cargo bike so a slightly different place than, than probably <laughs> a lot of folks he's talking to but the, the media as a whole i mean it's rough out there it's rough out there right like uh, i have spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about this and trying to figure this out over the last couple of years, as has like Wade, my former boss at CT before he left over the summer, as is everybody. I mean, I, frankly, like as is Robin Thurston, the CEO of Outside, right? Like he is genuinely trying to make this thing work. And at the moment, as layoffs kind of prove, it's hard, right? It's really, really hard to, to get people to pay for something that they haven't had to pay for historically. You're, you're trying to put the genie back in the bottle, right? That's what we are trying to do. And it's really, really, really difficult. And then frankly, it's one of the things we were most proud of at Cycling Tips is that we did have this core hyper-engaged audience that was willing to pay us for, for what we did. And not only just pay us for like the content that they had access to, but pay us for the whole community that we had built. Right. I mean, there, there's a there's a Velo Club, which is the the sort of membership program at Cyclotips. There's a Slack group for Velo Club, yep. which, I, which I'm concerned about right now. But that group of people, a couple thousand people, not it's not the entirety of the membership. It's it's like sort of the most hardcore of the membership, I would say. And it's a couple thousand people. It, it's sort of like its own little private forum, right? And and they support each other and they ask each other questions and they ask us questions. Asked past tense. Asked us questions. You know, when 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 they had a tech question, they 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 ping James, and they had a racing question, they they would they would ping me or they would ping Matt Denis or somebody like that, and they would also just answer each other's questions. And they built this it, it, this incredible community there that, for me, underpins any successful particularly sort of niche media or, 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 or vertical media business, because those are the people that not only are they giving you money to, to keep the lights on, but they're, they're, your, they're your biggest advocates, right? They are your, your most important advocates in the space. They're the people that, that tell their friends. They're the people that get other people signed up. They are, they are more important than any marketing spend you could, you could ever possibly utilize right so that that was one of the things we were really proud of over the last couple of years and i think that that is a model in some ways for 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 going forward so you know like i said i'm i don't have a non-compete i can start anything i want right now and i and i and to be to be very blunt like i fully plan to i think that i think you absolutely should <laughs> you clearly have an audience that that yeah. misses your voice and that values what you brought to the table yeah and i would say like honestly it's it's even it's less my voice and it's more like Dave Rome and Matt and like the rest of the crew, because I, I do like mm-hmm. to put, you know, put the folks that that were writing day day in, day out for CT, like well ahead of anything that I was doing. But I, I did spend more time than they did thinking about how to, how to build a media business. And so, yeah, I, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to do something here that there's, it's only been a couple of weeks since we were, we were, 
let go. So we're still figuring out what the details are. But like I said, you know, we've already kicked off a little podcast. We know that there's a lot of people out there that are kind of waiting for this. And we will we will just try to give them what they want, I guess. I mean, my in my mind, the the ideal sort of media entity of the future, and I, I've used this term a couple times with, with Dave in, in talking about these things, is, is essentially an aggregation of niches or niches, if, depending on which pronunciation you prefer. So rather than try to go really broad and talk about a little bit of everything, which, which tends to be kind of the model across most of cycling media, I prefer a concept where you, you essentially allow editors to, to dive into their, their interests and their strengths, right? You take, you take Dave Rome and you say, Dave, you love tools. You're a real weirdo about it, but we appreciate your weirdness and we, we, we embrace it and, and do it. Like, tell me everything you can possibly tell me about tools because I'm pretty sure there's an audience there. And even if it's not that big, even if it's a couple thousand people, if they are hyper-engaged with you, a couple thousand people in a recurring membership model recurring revenue model is enough to pay Dave plus some, right? And then you sort of mm-hmm. you take that concept and you and you expand it out. And yeah, it's it's it becomes the basis by which you can build a, a, a media entity that I think is is sustainable. Now none nothing I'm saying here is wholly original, right? Like this is the broadly the direction that a lot of different media entities are going. Uh, anybody who sort of follows that world there's there's like there's a new politics site called semaphore that is essentially the same rough concept right you, you dive headlong into into particular beats you provide a ton of depth in those beats you hit the the audience people who who really care about that particular topic and you pull that group in and then you do the same thing over here and you pull that group in you do the same thing over here and you pull that group in and there's for sure people that care about more than one obviously but you really like you focus really deep on each one of these things and that's the that's the if i could build something and and i you know like i said i I intend to try that's the concept i think that that makes the most sense to me from a from a business perspective from an editorial perspective from from every perspective i can i can think of basically yeah so i've had folks like russ roca from pathless pedaled Mm-hmm. on the pod. He has a YouTube channel you may or may not be familiar yep. with, but that's become his livelihood, right? Mm-hmm. And he has sustainers through Patreon. He doesn't do endorsements and things like that. I don't think he's doing any sort of sponsored episodes mm-hmm. or anything of that sort. And he's been able to make a living. And there are obviously plenty of YouTuber influencer types who may have less scruples about promoting things and uh, things of that sort. But who, I'm curious either within bike or, or outside of bike, what projects do you see succeeding in the model that you could imagine mm-hmm. emulating or building upon? Because um, I've seen a bunch of attempts at it and it's it's a really tough nut to crack. It's a tough nut to crack. I, I would say that the biggest and most obvious is The Athletic, which was just purchased by the New York Times for something like, I think it's $425 million. Now, oh, wow. the, so the sort of caveat around that is that that's probably less than they were actually hoping for. This is a, a, a VC-funded media entity that, that primarily covers ball sports. And... Their whole thing was you take you, you you essentially apply the beat reporter model of like a local newspaper. You know, you, you the, the the Denver Post, for example, will have a Broncos beat reporter. Then all they do is talk about the Broncos, right? And and they're even allowed to kind of be fans of the Broncos a little bit. They take that and they apply it to every single ball sport. So both types of football, you know, 
baseball, basketball, all the rest. And they apply a beat reporter to every major team and sometimes more than one beat reporter to, to really big teams. You know, like we're talking English, English Premier League, you know, Manchester United has a couple different writers on it. Aston Villa has probably one, right? So, but, but, but even so, if you're a massive Aston Villa fan and you just want your Aston Villa news... You can go. You know that the athletics is going to have it because they have a person who is dedicated to your team and nothing else but your team. So you can also get like, okay, well, I want some broader. I want World Cup news. I want, I want the Manchester United news. I want the Ronaldo news. But I really want my Aston Villa guy, right? That is essentially mm-hmm. the same model that I'm talking about. Where like, I believe that people really want Dave Rome's tool stuff. They probably also care about lots of other things that that we will write about, but they really want Dave Rome's tool stuff. And that's probably the thing that's actually going to get them across the line from it, from a membership perspective, right? Is that deep, deep, deep love of this one thing that a content creator they like is talking about. That's the kind of thing that, that, that moves the needle. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the athletic is, is kind of the biggest, most obvious example of this kind of working. They made, I think, some strategic errors early on in the way that they pulled staff together that made it quite an expensive organization to run. And I think that's probably part of the reason why they didn't get quite as much cash for it as they thought. But still, building a media a media entity from nothing in the last, I think it started five years ago or so. I remember mm-hmm. sitting at a Tour de France press buffet with some of the British. So at the time, it was you know Sky era. A lot of big name British sport writers, sports writers were coming over the tour. And a couple of those guys were talking about job offers from the athletic and actually like how insanely well paid they were going to be. So I think that and was about- these are full full time positions. We're not talking oh, yeah, yeah. just shifting everything to freelance like so many no, no, no. These techie VC yeah. funded models do. No, I mean I, I don't I, I mean perhaps they're contractors or something, but like, you know, the, the these individuals are writing a, a story a day most of the time about the particular beat that they're talking about or story every other day, depending on the, on the, on the writer probably. But anyway, yeah, about, about five years ago. So you see, you know, you've got a media entity that's only about five years old and just sold to the New York times for half a million dollars or whatever it was, or sorry, half a billion. Yeah. That's a pretty, that's a success story <laughs> in my mind and shows that the, the model can work. I think there's no guarantees and that's a scale that I don't really have any need want or desire to come anywhere near but i do think that the core essentially value proposition of membership that they that they showed worked it can work elsewhere can work in cycling can work across endurance media i think well and again with my kind of very cursory understanding of the space they were acquired by the new york times which itself went through its own economic model crisis Mm -hmm. and had to make the switch to a paywall and the quality of the content was sufficient that they're they're, they're making such well. large acquisitions, so they must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. They're they're not the failing New York Times as some folks <laughs> called them a few years ago. I think there's also something to be said for consolidating quality and having the interaction of the sort that you did at, at Cycling Tips, not just through a Velo Club, but also just the comments section. It it was a very unique space, and your team was in there interacting and the the nature of the communication that I saw, the way that your readers were engaging, there it didn't seem hierarchical at all. It was a conversation with with you and your team. And that that was very, very cool to see. And that was something quite special that I think is more consequence of the 
people involved than of the particular platform. As special as Cycling Tips was, and I was one of the early readers, That was those are my racing days when it was literally just the blog mm-hmm. and it was pointers on how to train. It was the cool thing at the time and uh, <laughs> actual Cycling Tips. Yeah, that name was was a direct, directly correlated with the content. But I don't know if I've shared this with you, but in addition to the podcast, which is founded by Craig Dalton, we also started this Slack community called The Ridership, which also is a bit over a couple thousand members and also has these like healthy dynamics. We call it a, a community of riders helping riders. And that was directly inspired by what you guys do at Velo Club. Mm-hmm. I saw what you were doing over there. And it was just uh, something that wanted to emulate, found inspiring, saw a place for. And I'd be curious, <clears throat> one of the things that Craig and I have talked about is some form of shared platform that's somehow democratically governed where content creators and those who are engaging with their content, who want to support them and so on, can all meet. And having that be something centralized in the sense that it's all meeting in the same place, but decentralized in terms of the governance structure, and then maybe even set up as a nonprofit. Mm. I'm curious if you've had any thoughts around that sort of thing. Yeah, I've actually sort of played around with similar ideas. We, yeah, in this, well, again, in the sort of couple of weeks that I've been thinking about, really thinking about this now, we thought through, so, so ironically, one of the things that... There's been a fair number of complaints around with outside was was essentially like Web3 and, and NFT stuff. However, some of that technology would actually make something like what you're talking about potentially work quite a bit better. Again, uh, I haven't spent, we, we didn't go too far down this, this, this rabbit hole because we feel like getting something off the ground relatively quickly is, is, is a priority, but I agree that that something, I, I mean, platforms work, right? Like that's essentially, that that's all YouTube is. It's just a platform for other people to, to, to put content on. They monetize it over top. They give you a cut. They take most of it. That's a, it's a pretty good business yep. actually. In, so like, could you yeah. do that for endurance sports? Perhaps, probably. Are there enough, are there enough really high quality individual content creators out there to make that work? Probably, maybe, like, are, are there enough Ben Delaney's who would love to probably work with a platform that, that increased their visibility, but, you know, in, in exchange for a cut of whatever he's making? Probably. I mean, that's essentially the, the deal that he's made with YouTube, right? Like we were saying. So mm-hmm. I think there's something there. I don't, I think, it, I think it'd be incredibly difficult to, to get off the ground and would almost have to be quite organic. And you'd have to be kind of willing to, to sit on it and let it grow for quite some time or or sit on a bunch of investment money and, and do it that way, which I don't necessarily have the time for at this point in time. But I like the idea. I really I like it genuinely. You know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with other people in, in bike media over the last couple of weeks because for obvious reasons, people are giving me a ring. They're saying a lot of them are saying basically like, hey, I'm sorry, just checking in on you, stuff like that. And we and we get to talking about this sort of thing. And one of the things that keeps coming up is this desire to stop competing so directly with each other as bike media, right? Like the space is too small. Mm. We all do our own thing. We talk to maybe the same audience in general, but we talk to them in very different ways. And, you know, like I, 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 I've been on the phone with editor in chiefs of, of, of a couple different major bike outlets in the last week and all have said something along those lines. And I think that some sort of collective would, would hit the same. Yeah. It would hit, would hit the same, themes there, right? Of a, of a desire to provide a space for everybody to just 
create really good work that they actually get paid for. Because that's the hard thing. Again, you're still talking about putting the genie back in the bottle. You're still talking about trying to get people to pay for for something that they historically haven't paid for, or you're running an advertising-based model, which is incredibly difficult. And in, in this particular moment is very, very difficult. I mean, you know, Robin, CEO of Outside, mentioned that specifically in the letter that came along with, with these layoffs. Is like the advertising world out there right now, particularly in endemic media like cycling, is bad. It is bad news. You know, they're, they're looking into 2023 yeah. and seeing and seeing steep drop-offs in the amount that, that is being spent. So you run up against kind of similar problems, I think, with that model, but it is certainly something that is the incentives to me feel like they're lined up for creators in a, in a model like that, right? Because they, if done right, they would directly benefit from their their work. Whereas, you know, something that's always kind of frustrated me in this space is like the value of myself and, and, and editorial teams have increased the value of entities tremendously of, over my career. And then they get sold and I see none of it. <laughs> and so like yeah. that, that, the, yeah. incentive, and, the incentive that, structure is not, is not great within most of bike media. Yeah. It's bad enough in the tech space where there are stock options, but generally to the founder goes most of the spoils, even though, and I say this as a founder, I don't create most of the value. Right. Nothing that that I could do would get off the ground without all the other people who make it happen. And so it's only right that there be a distribution of, of ownership and a sharing of the rewards if there is success, which in turn incentivizes success. In the case of cycling tips, in reading the comments, it's very clear that the readership knows it. Yeah. They're not there for cycling tips. Cycling tips is the bander under which all the people whose perspectives they valued, that's where those people are. And so your standalone brand and that of your colleagues has value and has value in particular if it's brought in a single place where people can interact with you as, as they had in the past. It's a terrible thing to lose. And uh, you know whatever the reasons for it, obviously there are economic headwinds, but it's, it's unfortunate. But uh, there's a saying that I, I live by that seems to apply, which is change happens when the fear of change is less than the pain of staying the same. Mm. And there's nothing quite like a radically changing economic model or layoffs or things like that, that make staying the same really painful. And so whether the fear has changed or not, time to take the leap. And people like yourself and, and Ben and others have been making that leap. I wonder, you mentioned that some sort of platform would have to either be funded by a bunch of VC money, which honestly, I don't, if you want to end up with a small fortune, start with a big one. Throwing VC money at things is a really good way to end up with Juicero. <laughs> I don't know if you recall that. Oh, yes. <laughs> 130 or $160 million of Sand Hill Road money lit on fire for a, a glorified electric press. For if anyone's curious, look this up. It is, it'll, it'll make you feel that, yeah, it, it'll make you question the judgment of, of Silicon Valley in a way that <laughs> I have learned to from the inside over the years. But the organic piece, let's, let's unpack that because I, I have a couple of ideas that I'd like to bounce off of you. So platforms like YouTube, I suspect it's going to be very hard for somebody who has an audience on YouTube or who wants to build an audience to leave YouTube. But having a platform that is essentially an aggregator. So if you're a content creator, wherever your content is, this is the one place where you can find all of it along with categorized content from other players. So you want to learn about tools, 
You have Dave Rome's YouTube videos about tools. You have his podcasts about tools. You have other content creators content there. And then it becomes kind of platform agnostic, like you can be anywhere, but this is the place where you go to find it. And this is the place where you go to interact because the YouTube comments, that's not an interaction space. That's no. largely a trolling space or, or it's a largely one directional sorts of conversation happening. Even, even the healthiest version of it is still not a conversation. But if you have a YouTube video embedded in a, a community platform, mm -hmm. now all of a sudden people are in digital community together and not just over, say, Dave and his tool-based content mm -hmm. or his tool-focused content, not to say that's all he does, but using that as an example, but also Dave in community in his local chapter, right? In his local riding community mm -hmm. and in the context of a place where people are also going for James's bike reviews and you know, your Tour de France coverage and, and things like this. That's one model that I've wondered, like if there was such a platform. How, how do you monetize it? Is it, is it paywalled? That's a big question, right? Well, so, so the reason so, I ask is because I, I, like, I would see a couple different options, right? Yeah. And, and we're getting into real sort of media theory here, but this, this was actually part of the conversation yeah. I wanted to have with you long <laughs> before all these uh, changes. And it's something we've discussed on the pod before as well with yeah. other content creators. I, I think, so for, I'll say that first and foremost, that I'm, I'm not anti-paywall. I know some of the, some others are in, in the media space, but, but I fundamentally believe that if done properly, you're essentially only targeting so 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 I'm, I'm a big advocate of what, what we call metered paywall which is basically you get a couple free stories in a given amount of time whatever the number is five six seven eight ten whatever you want and then at some point you you pay right now the nice thing about that is that mm -hmm. you know if we if we take a let's take a hypothetical cycling media outlet with somewhere in you know, we'll, we'll call it we'll call it two million unique users a month right you've got two million people showing up on a website every month. The number of people who are actually going to get to the paywall that are going to go to enough stories to get to that paywall is probably something in the neighborhood of like less than 5% of those people. It's a tiny, mm -hmm. tiny, tiny number because a huge number of those people are coming in from Google. They're, 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 SEO, they're coming into SEO stories. They're coming into, mm -hmm. you know, how to bet in my disc brakes and they're, they're in and they find out how to do that mm -hmm. and they are out, right? And that's the only interaction you have with them. And they're useful from a page views perspective if you're monetizing that, but they're not particularly useful from a membership perspective because who's going to pay to get one story, right? That that's that doesn't make any sense. So you're really only yeah. trying to monetize your yep. super users. So your super users are that 5%, the people that actually end up hitting paywall. And part of the reason why I'm not anti-paywall is because those people, that, that, that small group of people that is coming back day after day after day after day, they value you. And if they truly value you, yep. they should pay for you. <laughs> like, I don't have any problem with, you know, we put a ton of time and energy and effort into this and it is our jobs and we need to get paid. Yep. And if people, if people appreciate what we're doing enough to come back every single day and they're not willing to pay for that, then as far as I'm concerned, they need to look at themselves and, and, and ask why, right? Like all I'm asking for is, is, you know, eight bucks a month or whatever to continue doing so that so that you can do something that you do every single day that you enjoy that you that you gain information and entertainment from inspiration from even i think that that's a pretty reasonable trade-off i don't really have any problem asking the super user to do that i think that there are other paywall versions of a paywall that that i that i don't agree with sort of philosophically i don't agree with paywalling 100 percent of content i also think that that just ruins your discoverability and it, it doesn't allow anybody I was, to. i was gonna say is it yeah a 
then is nobody- it a philosophical thing or is it more just practically like you're Both. you're going to cut off all yeah. the channels for discovery? Both. Yeah, I, it it realistically, yeah, like I said, your discoverability goes to zero. People can't tell that you make good content. I have kind of a similar issue with the the like premium content model. So you you know you give away your your crappy stuff for free and the really good stuff you got to pay for. Like I don't like that either because why? As, and then anybody scrolling around your website is going to be like, well, the only things I can read are crap. So why would I pay yeah. for that? I, I don't know it's the good poor, stuff. It's a good. poor pitch. Yeah, it's a bad pitch. So so I have issues yeah. with that. Yeah. I also just like philosophically, you know, the, the sort of fully hard paywall that you can't read anything without paying beyond the discovery of discoverability problems. I just kind of have issues with that because like if we do write a how to bet in your disc breaks that don't make noise story, like I want people to be able to access that, right? Like then I don't have to listen mm-hmm. to people's loud disc breaks. You know, like people, I, I have no problems with pr- providing that much content to somebody for free. And I think that the fully paywall in that is, 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 isn't great. But again, I'm not against paywalls in general. Meter paywalls, I think work quite well. They, yeah, we know that they are effective. They can be incredibly effective, particularly if you have the sort of requisite, essentially story volume to make them work and, and sort of audience size to make them work. So given that, like the, the sort of concept that you're talking about, paywall seems like a like a, a, a good way forward because again, you're sort of avoiding the avoiding the need to, to chase advertising dollars constantly. And this is this is gonna be somewhat a reflection of what I'm thinking for 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 myself going forward, obviously. You're avoiding sure. you're, you're avoiding chasing advertising dollars incessantly, which, you know, I'm not against advertising either. I think the right advertising partners can be can be crucial, right? They provide lots of actually value to an audience at some point, right? You know, the fact that you get bikes to test, the fact that you have a good relationship there, those, those are all valuable things. So I'm not, I'm not anti-advertising either. I'm just more anti-constantly chasing every single cent you can possibly get out of advertising and, and the sort of the, the, the extra resource that that very concept requires and so yeah some sort of like membership driven thing lines up with the sort of ethos of what you're talking about which is very community driven we know communities are willing to invest in their own space where they can be a community and so that would make sense as well and if you start to do things like add too much advertising to something like that then you do the incentives start to shift because you start working for the advertisers Mm -hmm. instead of working for the community and that, I think, goes against the whole ethos that you're talking about, of this sort of communal thing. So that would be my, that would be my two cents on, on, on how to build something like that. Like I said, it is a concept that, that we played around with, and I've played around with in my head for, for some time, actually. I personally, again, it's more of, a, more of a time issue for me than anything. Not that I don't think it could be cool and don't think it could work. I just think that the, to build that community would take quite a bit of time. And also figuring out the precise method of paying. So the other roadblock that I that I came across when I was thinking through this was the precise method of paying content creators in that scenario gets quite complicated. Because are you paying them? Are you paying them by page view? Are you paying them? Is there a tip jar? Is there some sort of of you know? rank voting system when people sign up like i like these three creators and i don't like these three and so the top three get the, get my money and the and the other three don't that starts to create some perverse incentives toward bad content as well right and, and essentially that's the that is the yep. youtube problem yep. the youtube Click. problem is that yep youtube is incentivized for clickbait 
it's incentivized for yes garbage content <laughs> because that's that's the stuff that gets picked up. And think about think about your average like YouTube headline or YouTube sort of title card versus mm-hmm. what you would find on a a site like Cycling Tips these days, right? It's a dramatic difference. Like yeah. we, we would have to change headlines depending on whether it was going on YouTube or going on on the site back in the day because YouTube is incentivized to be like all caps and exclamation points and somebody crashing in the title card and all these things that we kind of hate because that's what you yeah. end up with. Kaylee Fritz destroys XYZ. Exactly. So after the monetization question, how do you actually split up that money with the content creators? It, it's a... It's a Again, I, I, like, I love the, the idea, I love the concept, but the sort of those particular decisions uh, be crucial to success and crucial to it actually working for the people that, that, you, that, you, know, that you want, want, would want it to work for. And it'd be hard. It'd be really hard. I, I don't have the solution to those questions, which is why I, again, thought through a lot of this and, and thought through a similar concept, not, not identical, but a similar concept and, and basically came to the conclusion that in the near term, a, a slightly more traditional model is not the worst thing in the world, right? Like build really good content, pay people for it, make people pay for it. <laughs> that's essentially the, that's the, the, yeah. the three part business plan of most membership driven media entities these days. That all makes sense. Well, I feel like I went a bit a of conversation. rant there. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And in fact, it's a conversation I'd like to continue because I have a few ideas that probably we, we don't want to dedicate a whole episode to just this conversation, but certainly appreciate you pulling back a curtain on the sorts of things that you as an editor in the space and an editor for one of the most respected publications in the space and for good reason, providing that perspective and the sorts of things that you're thinking about from this new vantage point is very much appreciative. So thank you for that. I want to go in Mm. a completely different direction. What are the pieces that you've written that you Mm. most enjoyed or found most challenging or that were most meaningful for you as a writer? Mm. Um, Internally at Cycling Tips, we called them riddles. It was a a term that Ian Trello coined for his little the little essays, right? There's a couple of those that I that I really enjoyed writing and, and liked writing. It's just sort of the pure act of 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 sort of language, basically, like playing with language, which is still fundamentally like why I started doing this to begin with, is because I really enjoyed doing that. And in the last couple of years have stepped away from writing almost entirely. Not entirely, but almost entirely. And and so when I did get a chance to write, it was always it was always meaningful and I and I liked it. That tended to be at things like the Tour de France where you know, I would essentially send myself because I, I wanted to go cover the Tour de France again. I have plenty, plenty, <laughs> plenty of plenty of talented, talented writers that, that reporters that could have gone instead of me. But at some point you pull the boss card and I'm like, I'm going to the tour. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's a couple of pieces on that front. Actually, one of the first pieces I ever wrote for Segment Tips, is, it was called The Road to Nairo's House. And it was about a trip that my wife and I and two friends took to Columbia. And it, it like half the photos are broken on it now. It's, it's, it's from like 2017. It's like 6,500 words of a trip around Colombia and all the sort of things that, that riding in Colombia, particularly in 2017, meant. Sort of keeping in mind that, that you know, a relatively large and disastrous war there only kind of wrapped up around the 2010 mark, depending on who you ask. So I, I really enjoyed that piece. And then, yeah, like these, these little riddles, uh, you know, there's a couple that I've written over my career that I, that you tend to write them in 
20 minutes, right? Because something just hits you in the head and, and you just, I mean, you just get it out. But it, it, because of that, it's, they're very pure, I think. I wrote one about the toe strap that my dad would use to attach a sock full of tube, tire, CO2, you know, flat fixing implements underneath his saddle, mm-hmm. right? And he would he would strap this thing underneath yep. his saddle with a with a strap, like a tube sock underneath the saddle with a, with a with a toe strap like a leather toe strap and <laughs> and I I wrote this story about how like you know I just remember when I was 12, 13 years old and you know my dad is obviously a much stronger cyclist cyclist than me at that point and just like you know trying to stay on his wheel with this like toe strap dangling in front of me. It's like the, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I just need <laughs> to stay on the toe strap. I wrote a piece about that at some point that I, that I ended up, I, I really liked and it was meaningful to me because of my, my relationship with my dad is like very tied into my relationship with cycling because we grew up doing it together and, and still ride together when we can and things like that. There was one about eating cassoulet and carcassonne during a rest day. Tour de France that I liked. Again, these, you What's know, Cassoulet and Percocet. <laughs> Cassoulet is. is like a, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not so fancy. It's like it's like a meaty like a meaty stew thing. You know, white beans and uh-huh. and and some some meat. And Carcassonne is a town in southern France with a big kind of world heritage site castle over top of it, and it's always hot as hell there. They often have rest days there at the tour. It's always hot as hell. And I have yet to find a hotel or an Airbnb there that has air conditioning. So you're always just like baking, <laughs> you know, second rest day of the Tour de France. You know, I, I think I was sitting in a cafe and I had a couple of rosés like you do and, and eating a cassoulet, which is also hot. So I'm like, I'm hot eating a hot cassoulet and just watching the world kind of go by, like the sort of Tour de France rest day world go, going by and, you know, with Greg Van Avermaet coming up and and stopping at a red light I'm, this i wrote the story a while ago and i'm trying to remember what i even talked about you know Greg Manab, he came up and stopped at the red light while a bunch of amateur cyclists like blew right through it and he's like nah, i'm gonna stop at the red light the proper professional cyclist yeah just 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 silly silly stories like that that stick in my mind and interestingly like i, I find they, they tend to stick in in readers minds when i when i got laid off those are the kind of stories that people were sending me being like hey i love this when you wrote it thanks for everything you've done kind of thing which is yeah i mean yeah. I, as somebody who creates things for a living when you realize that people actually read them and liked them that's a that's yeah. a pretty special thing so yeah road to Nairo's house rest day something at a tour de france i can't remember what the headline was and i think it was called the teaching toe strap which was actually a bella news story back in the day those are probably mm. three of my three of my favorites you know, I, I have never been much of a writer. I barely got out of undergrad and grad school, largely because I struggled with the thesis papers for each. <laughs> so writing has always been a challenge for me. Too much of a perfectionist with not enough of a honed mastery of the skill. But there is something that I get as a product creator. You know, There are the things that you create because you have to create them. And there are things that you create because you just have to. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to for your own reasons. And when people resonate with that, it's just immensely gratifying. Yeah. And, you know. I've appreciated your work and the work of your colleagues at Cycling Tips during your tenure there. And uh, you definitely built something special there. So excited to see what you do in this next chapter. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So you already hinted a little bit at this, but what does the bike mean for you? What bike. role has it played in your life? Why, mm. why do you care so much about this, this two-wheeled vehicle? Mm. I mean, it's changed so many times for me. I think that that that's it's almost an impossible thing to answer because you you could ask me that as a 13 14 year old you know showing up in spandex 
to to high school and getting lots of weird looks and it would mean a very different thing to me then as as it did when i was you know 20 21 and 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 you know weighing up a quote unquote professional contract for $3000 a year and live in a van to you know the middle of my velenews era to now where you know like the bike that i rode more than any other bike in 2022 was a cargo bucket bike that that i ride my daughter to her to to daycare every say. single day you know I, I i rode that thing 2700 miles in one year three miles wow. at a time <laughs> so like so with your daughter in it half half the time yeah yeah more or less yeah yeah so like you know so that's they're, a lot they're, of they're in back really every good quality father daughter time totally they're they're back every morning they're back every afternoon and and yeah quality father daughter time and you know one of the most sort of enjoyable half hour of, of my of my day so so yeah it's almost an impossible question for me to for me to answer at this point other than like it's they're the, they're the through line for everything in my life since i was 10 you know that it's just that's the the thread that holds it all together right that 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 it was the thing that made me weird in high school. It was the thing that that consumed me in in college to the point of probably the detriment of my actual grades. It was the thing that 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 provided me a, a, a step into what has become a very enjoyable career. And now it's the thing that that yeah that I use to to just get my daughter around, which is which is like special in its own sort of indescribable way. So yeah, I guess that's the answer. It's the, it's the thread. It's the thing that holds all the other things together, basically. <laughs> it reminds me of a quote about marriage, which is, I've been married many times. It just so happens to have been to the same person. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this reinvention, this new relationship to ostensibly the same thing. I can very much relate to that with the bike as well. But, but yeah, it has been a delight being able to finally sit down and have this sort of really focused quality conversation with you, Kaylee. That was great. And wish you the best with your future endeavors. And let's absolutely keep in touch, maybe have you back on yeah. when you have the next thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Talk to me in January. <laughs> That's what we're <laughs> Sounds looking at Sounds good, now. Amigo. <laughs> All right. Take care, my friend. Thanks. Big thanks to Randall and Kaylee for having that conversation. Super fascinating subject matter when you think about the economics of cycling journalism and how consumers are willing to pay for it. I hope every listener of the podcast here values cycling journalists and find ways to contribute to their ongoing efforts to cover the sport we love. If you're interested in connecting with myself or Randall or potentially even Kaylee, please join The Ridership. It's over at www.theridership.com. That's a free global cycling community where you can connect and talk about all the things you love about gravel cycling. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. So if you enjoyed this episode, please go to your favorite podcast platform and just drop us a quick review. And if you're feeling especially helpful, feel free to share this episode with a friend. That's a great way to get new people involved in the Gravel Ride podcast. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.